0: Welcome, I'm Ross Young, and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we are excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. Just as a quick background in case you haven't heard our show before, CISO Tradecraft is a podcast designed to help folks in the information security community learn the techniques, methods, and technologies in the industry. The show focuses on helping mentor the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, I'm excited to present to you today's show.
1: Welcome back to another episode of CISO Tradecraft. I'm G. Mark Hardy and I'm here with Ross Young and we'd like to continue our discussion of cloud security. As you may have listened to a previous episode, we tried to cover the foundational elements of, well, what do we mean by the cloud? Who's responsible for different levels of security within different cloud offerings? infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, software as a service, and essentially where are some of the resources that we could look at in terms of trying to figure out how do we um, move forward in our environments where we might have a single cloud, a multi-cloud, hybrid cloud environment. And so what i like to do with this episode with Ross is to go a little bit more into detail in terms of the security of the cloud because I think that's going to be the one where Uh, As we get more experience with the cloud, that's going to be the difference, if you will, between uh, success and uh, a terrible oops.
0: Yeah, when when you first start to look at the cloud, you might come across a document called the Amazon Web Services, or AWS, Well-Architected Framework. And if you see this document, you will just see there are literally hundreds of things you have to do to get security right. And it's a little bit overwhelming. Now, what I also found was a really good thing to focus on was Amazon came out with another document called the seven design principles for securing the cloud. And when we go through these, you're gonna just see some really cool capabilities, but they don't teach you how to implement those steps. But today's episode, we're going to show you a couple quick wins of what you can do for each of these steps to transform the security in your organization.
1: Wow, that sounds like rather ambitious, but it sounds like a great thing to do. So, well, uh, let's let's get right into it. And uh, so, seven design principles for securing the cloud. That sounds rather ambitious. Um, what's what's the first? How do we get started? The first one that we see
0: is we need to implement a strong identity foundation. And if you think about this, no one should go to your cloud unless they're authorized. And the way we make sure people are authorized is through access control systems, through authorization and authentication, and ensuring other security principles like least privilege and separation of duties. And when we think about this in the cloud or in any modern IT service, there's typically two things I would expect to see in your organization. One is SAML, and SAML is a way that we can federate identity management. What that means is the cloud provider will allow you to make sure they're in your approved list. So you don't have to have a unique sign-on for every place. How can you federate your identity management? And this is really powerful for things like single sign-on and using permissions across every environment. So you'll want SAML. And I think most organizations ask for that in every contract that they have for third-party providers. The other piece, oh, go ahead.
1: So, So in summary, again, I'm trying to interpret as we go along, make sure I'm getting it. So SAML, this security assertion markup language really kind of passes information about users or logins or attributes between the identity provider and the service provider. So basically I can confirm who somebody is and then present those credentials to perhaps more than one service provider saying, hey, this person is authenticated. We know they're trusted. Is that a, is that a good way of saying it? That's exactly
0: right. And in addition to having this federated identity management capability, you really want to include something called multi factor authentication. And if you think about this, this is hey, I, I log into my email provider, but they ask me to provide a token or a one time code or a text message that I receive with, with a PIN back to them. And this is really, really important because when everything is in the cloud, it makes it extremely accessible for folks to to talk to them. If it was in your private intranet in your own data center, well, that's not internet facing. And so there's a lot less access. But if you're using a public Gmail server or a public Office 365, and the attacker only has to guess password as Password 123, well, things are going to go really bad really quickly for you, unless you have multi factor authentication where the attacker is not going to know your six digit PIN number to apply in addition to the password.
1: Right. So the MFA really involves having a separate device or an out of band communication beyond this traditional login. We've often seen them where they could be a push that will come in the form of an SMS. And so when you attempt to log into something, it says, hey, here comes your text messages. My bank does that. And uh, different banks have different levels of security. I know Chase pushes out an eight-digit verification. Uh, My other bank does six. Uh, But then additionally, there are applications we can run where you basically get a seed, which is a numeric string, which essentially maps to what? Some either 128 or 256 bit value. And then at that point, you've got a counter, the server's got a counter, you're both in synchronized. And then you know that within the last so many seconds, this was the value that showed up on the screen. Uh, and so that means that password guessing, password spraying type of attacks that goes against the cloud is going to be pretty much Neutralize because the worst that could happen is that an attacker guesses a valid password at which point the user gets something on their cell phone saying, hey, we're ready to log in, click okay. And he's like, no, I'm eating dinner. I'm not okay, something's up. And then the attacker would be stopped.
0: That's right. And so we really wanna tie this back into our cloud controls. Now, AWS has a couple ways to access their environment. One is a command line interface. This is where you open a command prompt and start typing things into a a black background typically. And they also have a very pretty user interface commonly known as a console. This is where you open your web browser and you go to their website and you can start manually configuring things through the console. This is opportunities. These are opportunities where we can apply multi-factor authentication. So be sure to have those on your cloud controls and capabilities. Otherwise, you're, you're allowing these password attacks that, that Gmark just mentioned
1: uh,
0: as being you know, possible to, to harm your environment.
1: Got it. So step one, implementing a strong identity foundation. And as you said, it's going to consist of two primary activities. One is using something like SAML, a federated identity, so we can validate credentials and then make that available to the different, um, you know, apps or whatever uh, services that we're running. And then also multi-factor authentication to essentially neutralize the risk of password guessing, password spraying. Uh, It's going to require someone to physically go ahead and grab a device and be able to read that. And that significantly increases the difficulty for an attacker.
0: That's right. The other thing that you really need to think about is this concept of least privilege. And this is something I don't think most people understand well enough, which is AWS allows permissions for all of their services. And if you have S3 buckets to store data, those have permissions. If you have EC2 servers for your applications, those have permissions. And a lot of times people over-trivialize these and just grant these wide accesses, like allow access to EC2 star. And what happens is behind that, there's well over 200 individual permissions that you're allowing someone to have. They can change security groups, which is your, your firewall for coming in and out of that server. They can allow them to access keys tokens and other things that could have much more greater harm than you originally anticipate with just granting access to an EC2 server, if you will. So one of the tools that I, I recommend people look at is a tool by the name of Action Hero by Anthony Barbary. And what this does is it listens while your application runs and shows the permissions that your application uses. So instead of allowing access to all 200 permissions from S3 or EC2, you might find that your application only needs five. And if it only needs five, by limiting the access to all these permissions, if somebody is trying to change the the firewall rules, they simply don't have the access and you block different types of attacks for your environment. And this is really, really powerful. So look at ways to limit access and follow the, the practice of least privilege in your environment.
1: Got it, so the least privilege then, it's the reason why we do not operate on our Linux servers as root for everybody and we don't let our end users have administrative privilege on the Windows boxes uh, because uh, it's in the hands of somebody who is not certain what they're doing it's kind of like uh, root is like chemistry. A little bit of knowledge is dangerous. You can blow yourself up. If you really know what you're doing as a sysadmin, you're fine, but that's a great way to go ahead and do that.
0: Perfect. Now, as we pivot to the second fundamental that we want people to do, it's enabling traceability. We've just talked about how only authorized people are going to come to our servers. Now we need to think about How do we keep them, uh, how do we keep a close eye on these individuals? We need to monitor and alert and audit their actions when they change our environment. Nine times out of 10, it's probably a good change, but we also have to protect ourselves against the insider threat, the hacker who's come into our environment and is doing things without our knowledge. And when we start to think about this, there's a couple of different tools that provide help to us. Amazon has this tool called CloudWatch, which what it does is it collects logs, metrics, and events from the servers that you host. So if you make an EC2 server that does things, you can see what's happening. They also have another service called CloudTrail. And it's very confusing because CloudWatch and CloudTrail sound so close. CloudTrail focuses on recording AWS events. So as somebody logs into the console, which is that web UI and makes changes to your firewall, these are things that can trigger AWS actions where you can see, hey, Johnny the intern was the one who created this change through the console instead of maybe through a preferred pattern like a CICD pipeline that organizations would use to enforce good security practices.
1: So, really, what we're talking about in the traceability, when you start saying monitor, alert, and audit actions, but then the trick was actions and changes to the environment. So, really, not talking about what's a user doing and things like that. We're really more looking at the potential changes in the cloud infrastructure. Is that correct?
0: That's right. We want our developers to do good things and we want to empower them to make decisions that are things we can deploy very rapidly. The faster we can deploy code changes, the more features they can deploy, the more faster they can patch cybersecurity vulnerabilities. At the same time, we also want to double check for due diligence on cybersecurity. So instead of just having developers log into a console to make changes, and we don't have any record of what that looks like or the desired state, we see most organizations saying, we want concepts of infrastructure as code, where they create um, these infrastructure files in a tool like AWS, Formation or Terraform to specify how the firewall should look, to specify what ports are open on the servers, to specify how things have connectivity. And then we can perform security checks against these through our monitoring, through our pipelines to ensure we have a strong AWS configuration.
1: So it sounds like there's a lot of things that we're gonna be potentially monitoring and yet these tools, however, make it fairly straightforward for us. Uh, does it give us a single pane of glass, so to speak? Uh, or is you know, what, what's the experience, if you will, for the, someone administering the security in the cloud when we're trying to enable all this traceability? It,
0: it takes a little bit of experience, and, and I'm not going to say it is not and it is an easy thing. No, you need people who've gone through some type of AWS certification to understand the ins and outs of how these services work. So I, I would recommend people getting something like the AWS Solutions Architect Associate certification to bring up a certain level of knowledge of these environments. Now, once you have competent people who understand how a cloud provider works, we need to look at what tools can be used to monitor, right? So we can have things like Cloud Custodian to automate security, monitoring and responses. We can enable tools like this. And and what it does is it allows you to automate responses. And let me just give you an example by this. Let's say your organization has a policy that says you're not allowed to make a new internet-facing server without going through some type of a review board. Well, if a developer introduces a server, what this does is it has a, a listening device. It, it's just a lambda job, and it listens to say, hey, your environment exposed a new internet touch point. Did you want to do that? And, and you can actually give it very detailed instructions from just alert me and tell me about it. Or no, no, blacklist this this item, turn it off. And so this is ways you can safeguard your organization through automation. And you can apply your security policies that nobody reads into an an automation step that is always enforced. So this is really how you make security policies effective in an organization and automatic.
1: And so it'll scale and it gives you a better span of control because you're not constantly trying to look at all these different activities that could potentially create an issue. They're all being brought to your attention to make sure that things are being done correctly.
0: Exactly. Especially if if you have a information security officer that has to police 500 different developers, he can't understand that code. He can't always be there to watch every single thing that's happening. So we need to automate that capability through something like Cloud Custodian.
1: Got it. Is there any other things that you could think of in terms of at this level where we're doing monitoring, alerting, and auditing?
0: So one of my favorite tools is a tool called ScoutSuite. And what it does is a multi-security, multi-cloud security audit. So it can inspect AWS or Azure, and it compares those findings against the CIS benchmarks. So we talked previously that CIS the Center for Internet Security, is a place that produces really good standards and technical guidance of how to configure things according to best practices. Well, this tool is going to look at your environment and say, hey, it looks like you're not encrypting your servers at rest. That's pretty much a flag, and we normally expect all EC2 servers to be encrypted with Amazon Key Management Solution, KMS, And if it isn't, we're just gonna highlight that for you. There may be a very good reason why you do this. There may be a terrible reason why you didn't do this, but this allows auditors or different types of second line reviewers in an organization to understand how developers might not be following best practices.
1: Got it. So what we've done now, we've covered the first two of implementing a strong identity foundation and enabling traceability, what comes next?
0: Well, now that we have ways to monitor our servers, we need to make sure those servers are actually well configured and patched. What I mean by this is if I have a Java application that is a web application, I need to make sure that the OS is patched. I'm not running bad versions of SSH that just skip the the application, I need to make sure that my Java runtime is good. If I'm running bad versions of JRE, Java Runtime Environment, or middleware, that needs to be patched. So running a a patched version of something like Tomcat and running a good, solid web application that is also patched with the application libraries. So these sorts of securities where I'm patching is the first step. Mm-hmm. The second step is configurating is configuration. because you can have a great hardened, fully patched uh, Windows box. But if you allow anonymous users into there because you've had one misconfiguration setting, then it doesn't matter. That it's fully patched, you've just granted access. So little things like that where we have to look to make sure our, our web server is using, you know, good TLS versions and and you know performing some type of really good authentication. All those configuration items are things we would want to check in our environment.
1: So those sound rather fundamental and things that we need to do. Now, are there tools out there that sort of give you some advanced capabilities?
0: Well, what I think we need to look at is how can I have an effective real-time view of what my developers have produced, right? I need to understand if I have 10,000 machines in the AWS cloud, which ones are patched? Which ones are not patched? Which ones are well configured? Which ones are not well configured? And to do this, there, there's kind of two ways. I can do it through a build pipeline or I can have agents in my environment providing real-time feedback. So Amazon introduced this application called AWS Inspector. And what it allows you to do is very similar to what we would see from Qualys or Nessus. It allows you to look at a Amazon machine image and think of this just as a Linux server and see if it's well patched. And so an organization is probably going to create something like a a gold image. Here is the hardened Linux environment that we want every Linux developer to to utilize as they write their custom Java applications. And, And maybe they even take it a step further and they say, oh, we actually configured all the middleware and runtimes to look this way. So now developers only have to write their custom Java code and everything else is maintained at a larger organization level. And this is really important because if I have a thousand developers and they're all fighting the same thing on how do I patch the basic Linux OS, I am wasting time. I want one person to do it for the entire organization and I want to reuse an approved image for the whole organization.
1: So that gives me then some real scalability advantages, you know, do it right. And then I could go ahead and make sure that it has been rolled out correctly. And if there's, any, if there's any variance in terms of things that are out there, I ought to be able to spot it because I can spot where those vulnerabilities are.
0: Exactly. And so this is how we do it in the build pipeline piece. Right. But remember okay. I said there was a second way we have to, to pull from our agents, right? So uh-huh. we're gonna have agents on these servers that provide us a real time asset inventory. And and what you see is something like a Qualys or Nessus tool where it's getting that OS and middleware layers of patching and configuration checks. And then you're going to apply a RASP, a runtime application self-protection tool. Think of a T-cell, a contrast security or screen product. And they're going to say, hey, are you running vulnerable versions of Apache struts like Equifax did, or is that good? And in those two types of system inventories really allow you to know, are you vulnerable to this CVE, this critical vulnerability that was just announced that attackers are starting to weaponize because you know which applications need to patch.
1: Got it. Okay. So now we're starting to to really get going. We've got an ability to have a strong identity foundation, we can trace things so we know what changes are happening, we can make sure that there's nothing bad going on. And then we're able to then go ahead and look at security really through all the different layers, both through automated assessments as well as being able to do asset inventory. Um, Is that enough or we still got more to go?
0: No, no, unfortunately, we gotta go deeper down the, the rabbit hole. So we need to look for ways to automate some of our security best practices. And previously we talked about using Scout Suite to check on this, but there's, there's a, a few more things we have to look at, right? We need to understand if developers are providing these credentials, these SSH keys, Secure Shell, or our Amazon credentials, uh, and you'll see these files called .pem files in, in their software code. Because if that's lost or stolen, you've just already given away the permissions to, to access these things. So you'll see some type of credential scanning environment. Uh, tools. You'll also see these checks on your cloud environments. You might use TerraScan to scan your Terraform files. You might use a tool like CFN NAG or CheckOff to scan your cloud formation files. And in these things, we'll say, hey, your infrastructure that you're putting together isn't consistent with the best practices. And, and there's some false positives in these tools. For example, an S3 bucket. Could be very useful to host a public website on, but it could be really bad if I'm hosting a private website publicly. So, so you'll want to review these findings to, to see what they're saying. And you're also going to see other things around scanning containers. You know, containers and Kubernetes is a really big thing. We'll have to do a, a, another episode on that and more uh in, in the future. But these have container registries where you can upload your container and you can pull your container and, and it'll just check to see if those are patched as well. So lots of ways we have to look to make sure things are checked against security best practices.
1: Got it. And so really the security best practices act as a reference and much like one would go through with a CIS benchmark, center for internet security, Dot org or cisecurity.org benchmark to say, hey, do I meet this, do I meet this, do I meet this? What you're suggesting is we can actually kind of start out with a good solid benchmark to begin with. And then we periodically audit that from time to time to make sure that we're there. And we can do our, our um, ability to automate these best practices by locking things down such that they're not going to be altered. They're not going to be changed from a secure configuration. And we can provide some assurance that we're not running an insecure type of an environment in the cloud because we have these tools that are out there. So that sounds extremely helpful.
0: Exactly, Yep.
1: Now, at that point in time, I say, all right, great. I've got a cloud infrastructure. I built it to spec. I validated it, it meets the security spec. It's functioning, it's ready to go. And so then of course comes the question, what about your data? And what about the information that we're going to be moving both to the cloud and from the cloud, as well as perhaps residing in the cloud? And then that brings us a whole question of how do we protect that information and what are our requirements there?
0: Yeah. And this is where we're seeing most of the new security laws be about privacy. It's about data security. Your server may be good, but is there other ways that the developers or attackers can go around that to cause harm to your customers. So what you typically see is requirements for encryption. Encryption in transit, so maybe you have to use the transport layer security uh, model or or what what do they call those? Certificates?
1: Protocols. TLS is a protocol. TLS is actually a suite of encryption tools that give you confidentiality, authentication, provides also integrity and even non-repudiation. And so think of it as a, a cryptographic cocktail, where as part of the TLS exchange protocol, the client goes up to a server and says, hey, I speak all these different languages, pick one. The server comes back and says, hey, I like this, 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 and this, and then we're good to go.
0: Good insight, G-Mark. So you, you wanna use something like TLS 1.2 or 1.3 for secure communications and transit. You also need some type of secure encryption at rest. And and this can be using a custom solution, maybe you're a Vorometric user, or maybe you use a cloud native solution like Amazon Key Management. Each of these allow you to encrypt your data. Now, what we're also seeing is there's a lot of requirements to tokenize or use test data. So. When you have your production data, you need to keep that really secure. But you also want to test your application and make sure it works in a dev or QA network. So you, you may want to bring your production data down. And if you bring your production data down and now you have it with 100 developers instead of just the the three people that operate the production instance, well, now you got to worry about people stealing these PII elements. And so we'll want to remove fields that contain sensitive information and we can tokenize them, which is we essentially mask them behind, you know, hashes, or we replace them with test data and test data would be fake data. We have mock credit card numbers that you can use to sample and try for your application. So these are ways you can limit access to your data. We also want to think about in the unfortunate event that things happen and people are actually stealing your data, how do you identify this? And, and this is really where the whole solution of data loss prevention comes into to place, where how can you monitor your flow logs from your, your virtual networks to see, I'm getting major spikes in bandwidth, something's going on here right? How can I use a tool like GuardDuty, which is Amazon's data loss prevention solution to say, wow, this, this data is really sensitive that's leaving. This should not happen. Something's going wrong here. And in these types of advanced techniques allow us this insight to know our application is somehow misbehaving or there's a exploiter or, or vulnerability somebody's taking advantage of.
1: Right. And of course, one of the things is, since we're potentially running web apps, is there's always a concern about the OWASP top 10, the Open Web Application Security Project. It's kind of interesting, the current version of OWASP is still 2017. And then before that was 2013 and 2010, I remember I was at a security conference and and ran into one of the uh, gentlemen who was kind of running that group. And I said, hey, how come you're not updating this thing annually? It's just, Mark, stuff doesn't change. And so kind of quickly is to think about it, that as we bring in new developers, and they work in this environment, they're gonna make the same mistakes that new developers did a few years ago. Uh, Hopefully the developers from a few years ago are now better at that. And so what we wanna be able to do then, as you said, is protecting your information, but then scan for some of these capabilities that might have been inadvertently introduced by uh, one of your developers who just, well, didn't understand secure coding standards. And then as a result, potentially had a uh, a vulnerability that they've introduced. Um, So now, Uh, We've got data protected in transit using TLS. And oh, by the way, uh, this is kind of a good note for your CISOs out there, is that uh, Office 365 and a couple other major vendors are going to be getting ready to deprecate, which means you can't use it anymore, you shouldn't use it anymore, TLS version 1.0 and 1.1. There's still several thousand websites up there. And as I said before, quickly, is that the way the TLS works is the client proposes a set of suites to a server and then the server says, hey, I'll pick this. Um, Now, if you're just looking at cat videos, I don't think there's any problem watching it at TLS 1.0, but as a policy, as a CISO, you should require everybody to be up to TLS 1.2 and the experimental soon to become mainstream TLS 1.3 and not allow any of the lower levels.
0: Yeah, those are really good points. Another thing that I would also call out is people are really good at scanning their websites have you scanned your APIs? Because if your APIs hit your database, they're just as important to scan. So look for ways to scan those as well.
1: Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Well, now that we've got our data protected, we've got our container set up, we've got our server set up, we've got the infrastructure set up, that's secure, it's checked at benchmark. We now in protecting our data in transit, we're protecting it at rest. We've got all the right crypto turned on. We've validated things. We've checked and scanned for things such as weaknesses in our apps and our APIs. What what's next? What's left?
0: Well we need to understand the accesses we've given to our developers and our administrators in our environment. And so let me just give you an example. Let's say your data science team comes to you and say, "Hey, we want to try out these new cutting-edge things on this data set because we think it can help us, you know, understand our data a whole lot better and provide some big wins in 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 sales." Well, you're probably going to approve that project because, you know, the business is going to put pressure on you for that. And and now you need to make sure that if we give them admin access, just this star dot star access to everything, is that appropriate for every single developer on the team? Maybe, maybe not. And and so AWS came up with this really good solution called IAM Access Analyzer. And so what it allows you to do is allow people to build in this dev QA environment, improve all of their capabilities, and just listen. And you can say, hey, it looks like these developers are only using these 50 permissions, not the thousand permissions they're currently approved for. And and if I don't see developers using this permission every 90 days, I can put some type of a rule to go in and remove those unused permissions. So what happens is, If an attacker is somehow able to spearfish one of these developers and land on their box, now instead of having 100 or 1,000 permissions, they may only have 50 permissions. And this really helps protect us as a corporation, especially when you combine this with other things like MFA and SAML to really authenticate and, and restrict access based on permissions.
1: So this really kind of brings us all the way back to some of those earlier controls that you were speaking of earlier on a strong identity foundation, uh, making sure we absolutely know who is in there and things like just that. Um, And again, traceability, we talked about security throughout the layers and knowing exactly what's running in our cloud uh, best practices, locking down our, our S3 buckets, that is our data containers and things like that. Make sure that uh, we're checking our cloud environments, encrypting our data in transit, encrypting it at risk, making sure that if we're going to use test data, we either tokenize it or there are actually companies that generate workable test data. Uh, there are these horrible stories about organizations that take real data and use it as test data. And they saying, oh, that's okay. It's just to make sure that the format is correct. And somehow it gets loose. The worst I know of is a bank that did so with several thousand debit card numbers. And uh, they, every single one was compromised. It cost them several million uh, because it was no longer being protected as production data because it was labeled as test. And well, somebody left it lying around. And then so keeping people away from the data, the good stuff is key because now, as you said, the IAM access analyzer allows us to identify who has access to what when we see that permissions exceed that least permission level that is recommended or that we think for operational requirements is what we need. We go, well, let's fix that. And it's interesting sometimes because I know that we had done some work with a uh, cloud provider, I'll, I'll just leave names out of this, but some people might be able to infer what it was. We're basically brought into the company to help us work with our customer contact database and doing our online marketing. And they said, well, we need basically the equivalent of root access or administrator access to everything. And so, well, wait a minute. Um, we require is our policy multi-factor authentication Do people in your, well, no, no, because they're shift workers. There can be multiple people. So wait a minute, you're telling me you want root access and you're gonna reuse account credentials across a range of people that are not having multi-factor authentication. Oh yeah, that's a business model. Well, the CEO said he wanted this particular client customer contact management system with this enhancement to go ahead and integrate with our email system, Outlook 365, uh, software as a service, And it's gonna essentially read all of your emails, spot that I, hey, I'm talking to Ross Young. Wait a minute, Ross Young is one of my prospects. Let's dump that in there so I can keep track of it. Well, what do you do when you're a CISO in a situation like that? In that particular case, I said, well, you give this CEO what he wants, right? You don't say no, you always say how or explain the risk. And then what we started doing is we just slowly started trimming away some of these additional access credentials, these access rights to the point where we thought this is really all they need to get their job done. They had asked for the moon and the stars, and we ended up giving them a planet, and that was perfectly adequate. They never came back and pushed back. So one of the things from a leadership perspective you need to think about as a CISO is that if you've got a third party that wants excessive rights or access to your information, particularly in view of the fact that this was all up in the cloud, look at it really carefully, and if you've got a business requirement to go there, well, you need to go there, uh, but then you might wanna consider how do we go ahead and manage that access and then perhaps trim that back very slowly. And if they go, ouch, then you go, oops, sorry about that. And you put it back again. Um, so we've got all this stuff in place, Ross. This is an outstanding checklist, but what is it that makes this all come together? What is it that we need to be able to do in the event that uh, things go sideways?
0: Well, the last step that we really try to focus on is preparing for security events, because everybody has a plan until they get hit in the face, you know, like Mike Tyson says, yeah, Mike right? And, and so we need to have an incident response team. We need to have practices within our organization that identify what is the, the way we want to automate our responses, because if I have to wait for my security guy to be there on Monday morning, that may be too late Friday night after he has left work, right? So we can look for ways to automate security through incident responses. And, and one example might be, if you get findings from Amazon Guard Duty, which is that data loss prevention solution, or you have findings from AWS configuration or AWS config, that's essentially misconfiguration in your environment. Well, we can look to say, how do I automate a security response? Do I limit access to something? Do I take it off the network? Do I automatically patch something? And these are the things that we can use to train and adapt our environment to the cutting edge evolving attacks that we encounter.
1: Got it, and of course, the nice thing is in Amazon, if we're having to deal with an incident response, there's a lot of log information that's available. Uh, We don't have to worry about going, oh, I'm sorry, we deleted those logs because we only kept them for for seven days. Usually Amazon provides a rich library of information from there. Uh, We can have events that trigger different tools that cause us to go ahead and to uh, respond right away instead of having to wait until you read about it in the newspaper or get a call from law enforcement saying, hey, your information's out there. And also, even when it gets to the forensics, we can go ahead and do that in what would be kind of the equivalent of a clean room by using the AWS cloud formation and having things and being able to say, hey, guess what? I don't have to worry about being infected Uh, or these things getting damaged or ruining my original. So what we've got then is a great set of seven design principles for securing the cloud. Number one, implementing a strong identity foundation through SAML, multi-factor authentication, and limiting application permissions. Number two, enable traceability, monitor, alert, and audit your actions. And potentially changes to your environment, looking at tools like CloudWatch and CloudTrail and Cloud Custodian to be able to go ahead and keep track of things and maybe audit using a tool like Scout Suite. Number three, apply security at all layers, both basic patching for things like our operating systems, our runtimes, our web frameworks and our libraries, as well as putting in network controls for limiting access. And then ultimately some real-time inventory and vulnerability assessments like the AWS inspector for the assessments. Number four, automate our security best practices. Lock down those S3 buckets at where information is. Check credentials, make sure that we have tools that are looking for potential problems in our cloud environments. And if we're using containers like Docker, we can go ahead and scan in those to make sure that these are meeting best practice. Number five, protect our data at rest using transport layer security or TLS version 1.2 or higher, being able to encrypt our data in transit, encrypting our data at rest, tokenizing data when we're doing test data and the like. Number six, basically keep, keep people away from the data. Eliminate that direct access to S3 buckets to databases, removed unused accesses, block some of this remote connectivity to production servers, uh, not allowing folks to come in to be able to go access through, if you will, a side door or a back door. And then lastly, be prepared for security events. Have an incident response team, have a plan, go through the AWS Incident Response Guide and have tools that we can use like Amazon Guard Duty or AWS Config to look for issues. Ross.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think you've summed it up nicely here. These seven principles will really help you and your team. We'll provide a link to it in, in our show notes, so feel free to reference that. And if you'd like to learn more, stay tuned. We're going to have more and more things as we guide you on how to be more technical, how to use your CISO tradecraft, and how to influence the organization for better risk-taking decisions. Thanks again, as always, for listening to our show. We love having you here. If you enjoyed the show, please share it on social media, as well as invite your friends to subscribe to our show. Thank you again.
1: Take care, everyone.